sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Hey everybody, it's your host Adam Ringler and today for this episode, rather than advertising for some sport performance technology company about whatever latest gizmo that they may have, I want to remind you of two things. Number one, I have a monthly newsletter that goes out chocked full of great research articles, interesting tidbits, quotes, books I'm reading, things I'm finding fascinating. It is essentially the birch box of newsletters. You don't know exactly what you're going to get week to week, month to month, but what you can guarantee is that it's going to be chock full of good things. Head over to adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. Pop in your email and sign up today. You will not regret it. And I won't spam you with 8 million different uh, emails, you know, every week, every day, every month. So check it out, adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. Secondly, I get emails and messages every single publication talking about how can we support the Decoding Excellence show and the mission that you're bringing to us. And the easiest way is buy me a coffee. No, don't actually physically buy me a coffee. Head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. And there you can find in an easy donation way, you can pop in your uh, your information and you could essentially buy the show a coffee, a $5 latte, if you will. And what we'll do with that is those proceeds from that donation will go immediately into the hosting fees for both the website and the Decoding Excellence show. So we can continue to bring this show to you via iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcast player of your choice. So check it out, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. We have a great show for you today. It is a roundtable. It's my first attempt at recording a three-person audio, including two incredible volleyball coaches. The first, who is returning to the Decoding Excellence show, Eduardo Fialos. He is the volleyball technical coordinator here at University of Colorado, and he was also on episode number 29. And you can check that out at adamringler.com forward slash 029 and uh, check out that episode. And then I'm also joined with my good friend, RJ Abella. He was, and he's had a, a fun career track, but we crossed paths at Wichita State University, where he not only was their data volley, volleyball technical coordinator, but also was promoted and rose through the ranks, becoming an assistant coach. And then also very soon after, and he's participated uh, within coaching at the USA Volleyball level, and then made the move to both indoor and beach volleyball at the University of South Carolina. After a couple years there, he then moved to just being beach exclusive. And it was a great episode to catch up with my old friend. It's been a while since I've chatted with RJ. This was a really fun episode to record with both Eduardo and RJ. And I am very excited about bringing it to you. We get into coaching, philosophies, our backgrounds, how we came together, and some of the lessons that we've learned along our own coaching journey. So without further ado, here's my episode with these two great coaches. So I appreciate your patience because today has also been sort of a, a crazy day. It, my office was supposed to be really quiet today and we're now in our media uh, buff room, if you will. Um, oh, wow. Isolated away. It feels very official with all this hardware around us. Um, 
but <laughs> and then with Ed, we've had a couple candidates on campus for interviewing. So we're all over the place, but uh, I'm glad we we got to make this got to make this thing work. Yeah, now we can all relax and just chill and chat. That's right. I I wanted I was trying to get him to uh, to meet at a brewery, but uh, we figured that. <laughs> Uh, streaming that might be problematic. Now, you know, you never know about brewery internet. <laughs> oh man, if you if if that was in the meeting notes, I would have booked a flight and, and be there. <laughs> and we just kind of jumped into it, right? Which I love that because it's a little bit more, I think, authentic. But one of the things I wanted to make sure that I do is I want to give you both a small opportunity. Ed, you only get ten seconds. RJ, you get the bulk of the time. Um, only because no. RJ's no. raised more money than me. He's money. closer to the center of the, of the stage for the, our debate. Uh, but I do want to give you an opportunity to just sort of share with the audience sort of your background. That's something we just went right into. It's like, hey, RJ, hey, how's it going? And they're like, who is this guy? In case my, in case any of these people uh, that might be listening doesn't uh, doesn't know your brief background. But can you just for the listening audience, just sort of. Uh, essentially give, you know, like a brief update, a brief background to sort of how you got to where you're at right now. Yeah. So I, I originated my volleyball, I guess my collegiate career was when I played uh, at Newman University at the time was an NAIA school in Wichita, Kansas. And actually my, my first gig at coaching started at Newman because I had to medical red gray shirt and I had a knee injury Men's volleyball resources are very, very low as then being at a small school, even lower. So I was actually kind of like a student assistant coach since I couldn't practice. Anyway, they cut our program. I transferred to Wichita State University, which is the bigger school in Wichita, Kansas, was a manager there, was there learning the numbers from my head coach, Chris Lamb, got pretty, pretty good at numbers in the game and he ended up hiring me upon graduating as a full-time assistant because they added a director of operations position. Funny story is I was actually preparing to hopefully get a shot at the director of operations position. And then he just kind of throws a curveball and is like, you get your degree and you're my other assistant. I'm like, whoa, didn't expect that. So did that, still did a lot of numbers work as an assistant and, uh, Fortunately, a lot of people kind of, when you're trying to understand numbers and, and it was kind of the hot thing back then, people seek out those who know a lot when it comes to statistical trends or how to interpret data. So we kind of got hit up a lot. USA Volleyball found me and uh, they've had me work with a lot of their programs, but I spent most of my time with the men's and women's senior national teams. Um, during a lot of domestic international competition. And then our breakout year at Wichita State, we end up going to the Sweet 16. And I guess that's kind of the higher up you go in the NCAA tournament and stuff like that. If there are job openings, then they kind of look at the staffs of those programs. And I got hit up by South Carolina to come work at South Carolina for both indoor and start the beach program with my head coach, Moritz Moritz. And then uh, I spent two seasons coaching both programs, which I have the utmost respect for all those 
schools that have beach and indoor and their staffs work for both because I was, my body hated me. I was, I was hurting <laughs> coaching for both those programs and recruiting for both those programs. After two seasons, administration wanted to separate the programs and they gave me the option to choose who did I want to work with. And uh, it's not like they were trying to kick me out the door and like, you got to select one, but they're like, we want to keep you around. What makes you happy? And uh, knowing beach volleyball was kind of the wild, wild west. It only been, I think at the time, it might have only been a collegiate sport for maybe four years. I wanted to be kind of on the, the forefront for the sport and kind of maybe help influence how it grows. Um, so I took the leap of faith where <laughs> all my indoor friends made fun of me for making the switch to beach volleyball because they're kind of like, you realize where women's volleyball is on the totem pole of sports and collegiate athletics. And you're climbing up this ladder and then you're just jumping off the top of the step and going back towards the bottom. And uh, I, you know, I really didn't care. I, it, it could have been, uh, it could have been a bad decision when career wise, but regardless, I am the happiest I've ever been. Um, being with my head coach here and then the landscape of our sport. And uh, we just finished up our sixth season and, and about to start number seven. So that's kind of where I come from. That's, that's awesome, man. And, and appreciate you sharing that for the audience. Eduardo, your background. Uh, I'm just a small town girl living in a lonely world. <laughs> um, but I don't stop believing. You do not stop believing. No, um, so I grew up in Arizona, went to the University of Arizona, and I played club volleyball there and started coaching club, uh, club, like junior club volleyball during my undergraduate career as well. And I was working as a manager for the women's intercollegiate team at Arizona. And that's how I met Chris Lamb, uh, because he was good friends with Dave Rubio, who still is the head coach at Arizona. And so that's how this whole circle comes around is because we all know Chris Lamb. Then uh, after I graduated, um, I bounced around at a a Division II program in Southern California, a Division I program in Louisiana. I did some, uh, some teaching in high school and then eventually uh, ended up coming to Colorado uh, and coaching club volleyball at a, a well-known uh, juniors program called Front Range Volleyball Club. Uh, and that was where I got really into numbers. And that that program was sort of at the forefront of um, using numbers in in juniors volleyball. Uh, and then that, that led me to being really into the numbers and eventually learning data volley, uh, like RJ talked about. And... Uh, Learning data volley got me the opportunity to be a volunteer assistant coach at the University of Denver, and then that followed, or following that, I I had the opportunity to come here to the University of Colorado as the technical coordinator. So now I I do I do video and numbers. Um, like I get I get to be the nerd um, pretty much all the time, and it's it's really cool that my job is specialized enough that it gives me the freedom to uh, really dig into a lot of uh, a lot of the number stuff and and figure out uh, you know what 
what more is there to be learned? You know, like RJ, you talked about uh, being being able to uh, help set the direction that that your sport is going to go in. And I kind of feel like I have the opportunity to do that in analytics for volleyball, where there's still a lot of territory out there to be covered. And um, I, since I only have to worry about the numbers, then then it's sort of incumbent on me to drive drive the sport forward in that way. Uh, so I really, really love the fact that I get to do that um, while also getting to every day observe one of the best uh, Division One programs in the country in one of the best uh, volleyball conferences in the country. I get to be in the gym every day uh, with that program, so I get to see a lot of really cool coaching stuff going on and that keeps the coach side of my brain constantly churning as well. No, oh, and thanks uh and thanks for sharing that. Hey, well, I'm curious RJ just cuz I uh I remember talking with Lamb uh years ago when you were working at Wichita State and him talking about you as you were his data volley guy but you were looking to get into coaching because or and you didn't want to be pigeonholed as a data volley guy. What was that? What was that transition like for you? How did you work to keep yourself from being pigeonholed? Wow. So it's funny you you asked that because I remember. So it it all started with I was a manager. Chris Lamb was all about the numbers, and at the time I didn't know what data volley was when I first showed up. And because everything was just so old, like he had his big whiteboard and I stood by this whiteboard and I would just lots of tallies for different things. And then at the end of practice, I had this Sony digital camera that I would take a picture of the whiteboard. I would print out all the stuff and then I would import it into an Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, this is just not efficient. Like it's taking forever. And then, uh, the assist, the other assistant at the time was like, well, we have this program that, I mean, it supposedly takes all the stats for you, but just no one's ever really used it. So I was like, well, I'm going to learn this program because if it's a lot more efficient than what I'm doing right now, then heck yeah, I'm going to learn it. Um, so then I did that forever. And I got, you know, being with Chris Lamb, like the number, like a guy that just asked the most out of the box questions when it comes to trends and training and stuff is this cool learning from him. But then the problem I did come across was that when you become so good at it, and I'm not saying like I'm was amazing. I think I was very proficient in it. Um, more people will seek out more number stuff from you. And then you kind of become the expert and the people person to go to. And then, so it's almost like it's a, I always said data volley was like a blessing and a curse was that, yeah, you can get really good. It opens doors, but then you're just kind of stuck in that world because that's all the work you get is data volley stuff. And like, I got cool, like traveled with USA volleyball with the men's and women's senior national teams and all that fun stuff, but it wasn't necessarily opening doors um, on the coaching side. And that's what I knew. Um, originally it, I guess it was my first come to realization, but uh, USA Volleyball, my goal was to be a technical coordinator for a men's or women's senior national team. 
and there was a technical coordinator position that was created for beach USA beach volleyball. And I applied for it. I was a finalist. And then they said they were hiring from within. And I was kind of like heartbroken. I'm like, you know what, for, forget this. And, you know, some of the athletes were like, you know, we heard about it, right? we're bummed, but, you know, we're really excited we get to be around you still. And it was kind of at that moment where the relationship aspect between the athletes and I'll, I'll admit it when I, when I first started out at Wichita State doing the data volley stuff, everyone was just kind of a number because that was my job is type in Jersey numbers and what they do. And so it was just like a bunch of numbers, but it was kind of after that shut down from a USA volleyball technical coordinator position, which was one of my dreams. I realized like, wow, there's so much more to it. Develop. I had this relationship with athletes that I didn't even know about, you know? And so it's like, well, it felt pretty good. And it's like, if you want to get some more of that, then you can kind of get into the coaching side of things. And then that's when I got really, really heavily involved with the club. And then, uh, from there, just opportunities popped up. Lo and behold, there was some staffing changes at Wichita State and an assistant coach position opened up and Chris Lamb hired me. So uh, yeah, it actually started from not getting a job is kind of how I really, really go from numbers to coaching. That's always, I, I find that fascinating. Like as one door closes, like so often it can be pretty devastating, like uh, a dream job or something that you're really trying to aspire to get. And then it closes, but like you don't know what other opportunities open up or what other doors that, that as that door closes, uh, brings forth. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It, it's like, and it's funny because I wouldn't have ended up at Wichita state as a manager and the data volley guy, unless this Newman university dropped its men's volleyball program, which is where I was at. So I was like, man, I was so devastated about that. Now I'm just going to be a manager. And now I'm like, here I am sitting in my own office being like, wow, none of this would have happened if they didn't drop the men's volleyball program. <laughs> to backtrack just a little bit. So, you know, and, and I'm pulling a little bit of this uh, offline, but also a little bit from memory, right? So okay. from a historical standpoint, we cross paths, both you and I, RJ, and then Ed, we've obviously, we're, we're here physically together uh, in the studio. So we obviously cross paths, but you and I have crossed paths at Wichita State University, you were there, uh, you know, several years before I got there, two years before I get there. I get there in 2010. Uh -huh. By that time, you're already an assistant coach. So I didn't know, like, the data volley side of you, RJ. I only knew, like, assistant coach RJ. But I yeah. knew of your history. I knew of the fact that you were the, the guys that took you know, the, the guy that did the numbers and I saw you interact the athletes and then sort of move into this uh, coaching position. I didn't really know about, you know, this job and, and it falling through and data volley. So I always just knew you as like, this guy's a really, really good coach. And he's really smart with knowing the numbers and how to apply the data to the actual coaching side of, uh, of volleyball. So you might not remember this, but I actually, like when you first started, someone, like we had not really like a true common connection, but I don't know if you remember, but I'm, I still am right now, but I was big into Olympic weightlifting. I, I see the videos on your Instagram, like you're still crushing it. 
I'm going at it. But so back then I was trying to learn like on my own. Yeah. And I was on these like weightlifting forums and stuff like that. And I remember I posted a, like a technique video, like someone helped me out and they saw Wichita State like in the background. And one person's like, hey, I have a friend. I think he went to high school with them. And he's like, he's a new strength conditioning coach there. And I'm like, no way. This new guy actually works with volleyball, works the team I work with. And the guy was referring to you. That's crazy. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I think We're like just playing six degrees of Adam Ringler. Yeah, it was. It was so. He was like, I, I think you went to high school with the guy. I'm a, that. I, I will definitely, if that forum is still available, I will try to find out who we'll that track is. down this weightlifting forum from ten years ago. Yeah, and find my post history. But I thought that was really funny. I, I was like. And then I just, man, I remember because I would, well, one, I remember the first thing was I kind of chuckled when it was like we would do the spring conditioning and how you have the circuits in the gym. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, because you're just, you're so organized. Like you're like, I was even telling my head coach, like, look at this packet that he produced for the pre-show, like the welcome letter and then the what to expect. I'm like, that's awesome. But uh, I remember you had your workout like so planned out, like just to be efficient and on top of it. And I just kind of chuckled because I was like, oh, new guy doesn't realize that doesn't matter what you're going to do with this program. You can spend hours on it and you're going to have to just throw it out the window and do what the head coach wants. Well, you know, and to, to comment on that, I think that that prepared me for coaching, right? That like that that aspect in that I think my personality type and Ed, you know me a little bit, you get to see what I do when I warm up the team is I like order. I like structure. I like, um, predictability, uh, but moving and transitioning into Wichita state really challenged that perspective out of me in that it, it forced me to think of multiple contingency plans, multiple best case scenarios if I couldn't get the scenario that I was looking for. So, you know, like type A Adam Ringler personality is, yeah, let's prepare packets. Let's have this structure. Let's progress from one thing to the next thing. But like life is messy and sport is messy. And I think I I always take that away, like as a part of a learning uh, curve that, you know, Lambo and my time at Wichita State really allowed me to, to become more flexible I still like to gravitate to, to structure and order, but um, that forced flexibility was something I think I personally needed. <laughs> oh, that's that's something definitely I learned because I remember there was, he would always have, I mean, Chris Lamb would always have these speeches that would occasionally pop up like every year, like, or maybe it skips a year, but I remember one when he would always ask the girls, who knows what the definition of triage is and uh, everyone always thinks about the medical like oh medical emergencies like but it's like it doesn't necessarily have to be medical like it's just what do you do like how do you problem solve at that moment at that time without being prepared and just finding a way and uh i definitely learned that with chris lamb working on that staff but uh it's pretty cool because i think back then i would complain about just kind of the randomness and the impromptuness of things. But I look at my career in life now and how I can 
find a way to get things done on short short notice and short time. And heck, Ed, that's that can kind of be like your career also as like things change and you gotta you have to be the one to figure it out and make everything work. And I think that's a that's a skill that I think a lot of people, at least I know for me, when I was first experiencing it, I would make excuses and be so pissed off. But a little more mature and grown RJ now gets it um, and wouldn't trade those frustrating experiences for anything because I've benefited from it now. It's interesting. It makes me think about, um, well, we were at lunch today uh, with our, we're looking to hire a director of volleyball operations. And one of our players asked the the candidate, that stereotypical interview question, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I just kind of went like, I, I don't have an answer to that. And I don't feel bad about it because like, like I, yeah. I just think like, like if I went back five years from now, would I have ever thought that I would be doing what I'm doing now? If I went from there back another five years, would I have ever thought that my career would have unfolded the way it has? And that, that's the kind of thing I look at and it's like, yeah, it's really nice to have that plan and all that, but it, it, it's almost like, how often do you ever see those being successful? How often do you ever see those plans really playing out the way that you had it drawn up? And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I, I think some of the structure is good, you know, and, and, and being able to see into the future and have, um, like expectations or, um, or like goals. I think that the, that's good, but at the same time, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I worry about how much structure that demands and how possible is it when we're really bad at predicting what's going to happen next week. Oh, I, I'm in the same boat as you did. Remind, I'm going to kind of add on to that, but then I have a question for you when it comes to structure and planning that I, I'm, I'm excited to hear your answer about, but, uh, Actually, I'm just gonna ask, I'm just gonna ask that question, and I'll, I'll build on. But uh, what is the craziest thing that, as a director of operations, what is the craziest, I guess, triage moment that you've had to deal with? Because um, I've had one of my best friends when I was working with Indoor here in South Carolina. One of my best friends was the director of operations, and the stories she would tell me about some of the craziest stuff. Like, what is one of your craziest stories of I've got to figure it out and get it done? Yeah, I think top of the list was uh, walking into uh, walking into our hotel in Macomb, Illinois. Um, to we were playing Western Illinois uh, the next night. Uh, I'm at the University of Denver at at the time. Um, I walk in to check our team into the hotel and. The person working at the front counter is like, I don't have any reservations for you. Oh my. Yeah, that that ended up being, I mean, like, like just the the comedy of errors uh that it took to get to the point of us walking in and that poor person not having uh not having any record that we were supposed to be staying there. Like, you know, like <laughs> I just remember like um nobody freaked out. Uh, not me, not my staff, not the, uh, not the people working at the hotel even. So like, it's a small town. It's a, it's a little hotel. 
we don't have a lot of options. And uh, Western Illinois had had a home football game that was going on that oh, night. No. So like all the hotels were already full. So there weren't a lot of options. Um, the guy who was working the front desk just starts making phone calls. Like, and he's got like a buddy of his that works at the hotel with him who was coming in to work the next shift and had just stopped by to say, hey, that dude gets on the phone as well. So like I've got two hotel employees uh, making phone calls, trying to make arrangements, like figure out what happened, but then make arrangements for my team. Meanwhile, um, our coaches have um, have decided to go ahead and just start doing the scouting report um, in like the breakfast area in the hotel lobby. So we get like uh, a bed sheet from somewhere. They, they tape it up to the wall and they take out, they take out the projector and, and the computers and just go for it. And so like the kids sat around for a little while, but then they got video out of it. And eventually, uh, because a bunch of the people that, that were staying at our hotel had not checked in yet. These two guys that were working at the hotel called other hotels and got rooms booked somewhere, anywhere. So that way, when those people walked in to check in, the guy at the, at the desk was just like, look, I'm really sorry. We overbooked. Um, but I've got, I've got a, a room for you at this place. Just go there. You won't have to pay anything. Here's the address. I'm really sorry. And, and it, wow. yeah, like it was amazing. So like he managed, they managed to keep our entire team there. I mean, it, it took a few hours, but, uh, but our entire team got to stay at that hotel and everybody who was booked at that hotel got a room somewhere else and nobody lost their temper. Nobody lost it at any point. And it was, it was amazing when I looked back on it. I, I was like, I was tired. I was, I was just done. Um, but at the same time, I was so thankful that like everything ended up being okay. And fortunately we knew that the match the next day was probably going to not be super stressful because otherwise I think maybe our moods would have been a little bit different, but yeah, yeah that was probably the craziest, but it was it definitely all worked out really well. And that was awesome. That is uh, the cool thing that, well, one, that's just a miracle, pretty much what you just pulled off and what those two guys pulled off. Like, I've never heard of that crazy of a story. But, uh, the, the, the one thing that I, I thought that was always cool was that you kept mentioning that no one, like everyone was chill, like no one lost it talking with like our athletes and things like that, that's kind of a big thing for us is, you know, at the end of the day, you get to control what you want to feel or how you react. And I think majority of people would, there would be some sort of irritation going on. And uh, I won't lie, even for me, I prop like, I'll be honest, I'd like to say I wouldn't be irritated and I would just be chill and let's figure it out. I'll be realistic. I probably still would be pretty irritated about the whole situation but it's pretty cool that everyone in that situation was like ah let's just figure it out get it done that's really cool and maybe maybe that's why everything flowed so smoothly is because that uh there wasn't that anger that can really slow things down or just be an obstacle when it's 
easily avoidable. Um, so I think that's really cool. That's an awesome yeah, story. And and I think a lot of it too is just like, like yeah, I was I was a little edgy at at first, but it was just like, I I watched these guys be on the phone almost nonstop for like two and a half hours, and and I'm like, how can I be mad at them? Like they they didn't do this, but they're working their butts off right now to fix it. So like I'm. I can't, I can't be mad at these guys. Like they're doing everything they can for me right now. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you, you've pretty proficient out there hitting the roads, recruiting and, you know, scouting the next best talent. I mean, what about, uh, what about some of your crazy stories? Uh, maybe not uh, from a Dovo standpoint, but even just on the road, things didn't go as planned and you had to adapt and overcome. Oh man. So I, I, it's funny. I just, I was telling this story to coaches out in California because I just came back from a two week recruiting trip out there. But, uh, I remember I had a, I recruited a tournament in St. Petersburg, Florida. I, my, I had a connecting flight to Atlanta. So I, I'm finished recruiting, flying from St. Pete's to Atlanta. We're like, it's, I think it's like an hour and a half, two hour flight, maybe. I think maybe just like an hour and a half. We're in a circle, like a holding pattern around Atlanta. As you do. And they're like, oh, we just have to wait. We're in a holding pattern. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then we're doing it for like 45 minutes. And then it turns into like an hour and a half. And I guess the whole Atlanta airport completely shut down. And so they said that, well, we're running out of gas. We need to land at a different airport to refuel. Well, if the entire airport of Atlanta is shut down, think of all those gates and planes that they cannot land there. So everyone's scrambling to find an airport where they can refuel. All the airports like by Atlanta and even all the way down to Florida were all full. So we ended up fl- turning around, flying back to Panama City, Florida. It's like, we just came from St. Pete, Florida. We're, all, we're like 10 minutes from Atlanta. Then we have to fly back. And then we're in the plane for like two hours. They would not let us deplane. And then all of a sudden they let us deplane. And then everyone's back. And then so it's like, I think I left at like eight in the, eight or nine in the morning um, the next day after recruiting. It's like 10 p.m. when we finally land into Atlanta. Now, the problem is, all these planes are mass rushing back in. So now there's no open gates. So now you're stuck on the tarmac waiting for like another 45 minutes for a gate to open up. So you get in there and I finally get into Atlanta. I think it's like midnight, I think. And uh, the funny thing is Atlanta is only three and a half hours away from Columbia where I needed to be. And we had practice the next day. Um, and the next flight to get me back to Columbia wasn't until the next day in the evening. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, I can just get a rental car. It's like, all right. So I go down to the rental car places. One, they're completely sold out and the rental car places were closed. So I'm thinking, well, I'm only three and a half hours away. How can I get there? And it's, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in Atlanta, but it was like a scene from The Walking Dead where. And how funny yeah, Atlanta the where right The Walking Dead was filmed. But I kid you not, like if you've gone through the Atlanta airport, just through the lot, like the, the terminals and like through everywhere, there's just a body on the floor laying down. <laughs> yep. 
like it there's people legitimately sleeping like it's i've never i probably high stepped over a hundred people just walking around the airport and then uh i find a, a greyhound ticket and that greyhound isn't until like four o'clock in the morning so i take i book it on my phone take a taxi and you go down to a very bad part of downtown Atlanta, like a very, very bad part. And my taxi driver is like, all right, I'm going to drop you off, but you need to get out of the car right now because I cannot be here for a long time. He's like, get out now. I'm like, what the heck? And Opens up the door and just sort of pushes just, you out. I run and I'm like, I'm going to get some rest in the, the station. And then uh, there's just a, an interesting cast of people at the Greyhound station at like two in the morning in downtown Atlanta. And I definitely did not get anything. I just hugged all my belongings and sat in my chair waiting for my ride. <laughs> Board the bus at three and a half hour drive is actually like five because of stops and all that. And I remember my head coach, I could see him at the station and everyone's onboarding the bus and his face seeing the, <laughs> the interesting cast of people that boarded the bus. Like it, it I, I'll never forget that face. Um, but then I made, I made it to practice. So that's, but that was my craziest trap. I've had some pretty wicked travel stories, but that was my craziest one today. Sometimes I just, I like when I hear stories like that, I just laugh and think the things that we do to get to practice, right? Like, right. It's one thing for the athletes to show up and, you know, dropped off right in front of the arena, but don't underestimate what coaches do to also try to get to practice and be where they need to be at the right time. Oh, totally. And I, and that's why, you know, even with, with our athletes, like they totally kind of give us a hard time if we're slightly late to practice because of something. And I'm like, you know what? And we're actually held accountable as well. Um, but it really like it it's really cool to see like people really do do a lot to try to be at practice whether it's not just the players but support staff even or even managers um it's pretty amazing what hoops you'll jump through just so that everybody can be together for that however long your practice session or training session is i want to kind of maybe switch uh switch some of the roles i don't have a crazy recruiting i don't recruit as a strength coach and uh you know or set up meals although lately i have we'd probably have some real different looking athletes yeah so i don't have really too many crazy stories but i thought maybe switching gears right ed's been at a couple places from our uh conversations and you know you've you've managed to navigate from your playing career at Newman to, to technical manager at Wichita State and then back to assistant coach at Newman and then various clubs and national teams and back to WSU and that now to South Carolina to both of you guys really like what is maybe something in a recent transition from one organization to another or from one position to another from data Valley to an assistant or from an assistant to back what is one thing that you've like learned or had to change? We were kind of talking about adapting to scenarios, right? And a lot of it's kind of driven by maybe like your mindset and how you can tolerate and remain cool. What is something that you've had to change about your 
approach or your philosophy or coaching or tactics or principles or any of that um, as you've navigated these different jumps? Ed? Yeah. So I was uh, having a conversation uh, recently with a friend of mine who's an assistant coach. And we were talking about if you had, you know, if you were in my position, what would you do kind of thing? And and I found myself kind of hedging a lot in in the answers that I would give, you know, and and I said, look, I'm what I've what I recognize now is that in my position as a technical coordinator or in my position previously as a director of operations, like I'm I'm much more just a, a cog in the machine. And I'm, I am, I have my opinions and I'm happy to give my opinions because that way, hopefully I can, I can help inform, um, the decisions that, that take place in my program. But ultimately like, um, my job is just to give my opinion and I don't have to, uh, like the decision doesn't stop at me. The buck doesn't stop on my desk. So like, I don't, I don't have to be super strongly invested in anything. And if I don't feel great about a particular option, I can say, I don't feel great about this option. And like, I, like, there aren't a whole lot of bridges that I feel like I want to die on. Um, and that's the luxury of the position that I have. And I think that that's, that's a really cool thing, uh, in some ways in that it'll, it gives me a lot more flexibility, um, in how I approach uh, everything that goes into a decision because I'm not going to have to turn it around and sell it to my administrators or sell it to my team or, or anything like that or to the public. Like, I, I, don't have to, um, I don't have to commit myself overly to anything. I can hedge all I want. I can be uncertain all I want, and it's okay. And, and so in that conversation that I was having with him, I, I was just kind of contrasting that, like, look, man, I assume that there are things that you feel really strongly about, and who am I to tell you that you're wrong about what you feel strongly about? Because this is what it takes to run a program when you have to have opinions about everything, and those opinions matter. Like, those opinions affect people, you know? So you need to be committed to those and you need to be as certain as you can be of how those things are going to play out, you know? And, and so I like my position from the standpoint of that flexibility, but at the same point, at the same time, it's like, I almost feel like, man, I'm, I'm shit. I am hiding myself from all kinds of serious decision-making. I am hiding myself from all sorts of tough situations. And it's just because Hey, I don't have to, and I can just throw my hands up. Well, let's let's do this. What about what about you, RJ? Was there anything as you've navigated your career over the last decade and and more about coaching that you've had to that's resonated with you, or that you've had to change or think about? I'm not saying that you have to change things. I mean, there's some things that we all like, but anything that that you didn't foresee uh, as a something that you would have to sort of navigate an obstacle that you might have to navigate. Yeah. I think for me, the biggest thing, and then I guess is like, I, in my opinion, you do have to change like, and it's, it doesn't have to be like drastic, but so my time at Wichita state, what I learned, I'm so grateful for was 
how to see what's really happening on the court. Like kind of statistically, what, what do numbers, certain numbers mean and things like that. Like, but that was kind of for us at Wichita State at the time, like we didn't have the, the, the top recruits in the country. Uh, you know, Chris Lamb would always talk about like the tough part about Wichita State was that when kids want to come and visit Wichita State, well, you have Kansas, you have Kansas State, you got Missouri, you got all these schools right around the area that these other, that these recruits will go visit as well. And they're like, oh, there's so much more there. So we're going to go there. So it was kind of like, I I hate using the reference when it comes to numbers, but kind of like the money ball approach. Well, we have to get these athletes that were maybe overlooked or something like that. Or, and then we don't have to take a shot when someone references money ball. Oh, I, 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 I hate referencing that, but it's, it's just how everyone kind of can relate. Numbers, analytics, you mean uh, like mon- money ball yeah, or exactly. saber, saber metric? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was kind of the approach. And so when I'm at Wichita State, it's like, we're all about training. Like, yeah, we're going to teach some things very unorthodox. It's going to be different, but it worked for us. Like you have a mid-major school like Wichita State taking down some big schools with bigger, more polished, more recognized athletes than, you know, these girls literally that were working on a farm, you know? Um, And so I come to South Carolina and where the volleyball program isn't necessarily uh, where it's at now, um, and was kind of really, really struggling. And I kind of took the same approach. Like we're all about training. We're all about grinding and da, da, da. it worked at Wichita State. This is what's going to happen. And with that team makeup, like, no, it, it wasn't going to work like that. And it was at that time, I kind of remember one of Chris Lamb saying, and it was always at the end of each game for the end of the season. And fortunately for me, when I was at Wichita State, every last game of the season was at the NCAA tournament. Very, very fortunate for that to happen. But he would always tell the girls, like, you know, take this time to talk to your seniors because, you know, this is the last hurrah. And no matter what, no team will ever be like this team. And he's like, even if no one was graduating – at the end of the season, next year, this it's the same people and all that, but it's it'll, it'll not be the exact same team. Um, so me moving to South Carolina and realizing what we were doing at Wichita State, it's not working. Like, my approach is it's not working. But it just reminded me, it's like, yeah, no matter what, like, you can never replicate the exact same thing. Um. And so moving out here, I learned that from my time at Wichita State. And, and, and it's like, and I find myself at the end of each season telling the girls, like, no matter what, guys, like this season, enjoy it for what it is and what we do. Because next year, even if we have the exact same roster makeup, it's not going to be the same. And that's something that I've really taken to heart now is that you can't do the exact same thing, expect the exact same result. 
Um, that's the, another Lamboism is always asking what the definition of insanity is. It's doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting the exact same result. So yeah, that's, I guess that's yeah. what, it, that's what it was for me making the move from Wichita state to South Carolina. And then on top of it, making another switch from the indoor side to beach volleyball, which is just so brand new all in all. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on the, the beach aspects, right. And just to, to lay some of the, the foundation for it. Right. So, and obviously you got out there earlier than this, but like 2015 season comes around and you, uh, you have this 14 and seven record, which was, I, I think at that time, one of the highest of that era, that time, 2015 for you guys, 2016, you come around uh, 20 matches for the first time in the program's history. And it's relatively new, I, th- I think, at South Carolina, right? And then 2017 comes around. You best the 20 matches by uh, winning 23 duels. And then you make your way to the NCAA tournament. And then even what would have been last year, right? 2018, 24 wins. And then you get the six overall seed in the NCAA tournament. So, like, what you guys got going on there is working. And it's interesting to just hear like how you are still approaching that despite building on success that you're still constantly looking at the team and saying it's a different team. It's a different roster. This team will not be the exact same team and still managing to try to find uh, ways of changing uh, approaches despite building on top of the success. Maybe that's leading you guys to the success that you guys are having. Well, it's, it's been a pretty crazy roller coaster ride for sure. So my head coach, Moritz Moritz, that's his real name, his same first name, same last name. He's a big relationships and culture kind of guy. Not really so big into not and he's very proficient with the training and things like that. But he if if you were to give him something to light up his eyes, just mention culture and relationships. And he's like a kid in a candy store. And he was so big on that. And then here's me coming from numbers, X's and O's, training outside the box. And I won't lie, at the beginning, it's like, what the heck, man? Like, we got to be doing this. We got to be doing this. We got to be doing this. But he's, Moritz is, is, sees the big picture and talking about the culture of the team. How do we cultivate relationships? Um, with these players and get them to be the best they can be not necessarily the best out of everyone but the best for them and so it's kind of it took I I won't lie it took me a couple like uh, two years or so to really kind of dial it in some um and then it's crazy because I mean we still train super duper hard and, and we're outside the box with a lot of things because that's just how I was brought up um, when it came to training. But it's really cool now because we only really talk about X's and O's during our practice time. Like we spend more time talking about the relationships with our athletes. And then when we talk to the girls, if it's not practice or like a scouting meeting, we're talking about their relationships with their teammates. And how are they awesome teammates or their roommates or their family or a significant other? Um, and it was kind of, it's really cool where when we focused on that, like majority of the time, that's kind of when the excellence on the court kind of started appearing. 
we didn't change anything volleyball wise, but when we started putting the emphasis on our culture and being the best version of me and being the best version of Moritz and each player being the best version of themselves, that's when we really made big strides. And I thought it was really cool where, you know, at Wichita State, we didn't compare to what we do here at South Carolina for beach volleyball. It was very training, numbers, um, watching video, getting better on the court. And it's kind of like, well, if you're winning and you're happy on the court, you're probably going to be happy off the court. And at South Carolina for beach volleyball, it was the exact opposite, where we're like, let's take care of everything off the court so you can be your best on the court. And it's so cool how we take two different approaches, yet you can still have the exact same type of success. Um, so I thought that was something that was really cool for, for me to experience. To bridge on that, and then I'll turn it over to Ed. And I've been pretty vocal about this from a sports science standpoint, is that we often, as just sports scientists, sort of get into this realm of looking at everybody as, like you said in the, the opener, as sort of like a number. Like this is subject 1475, and they're force output is so-and-so and this is what their wellness questionnaires say and this is what she does. And I think a lot of the times in the conferences lately that I've been going to, we have you know sports scientists that, that discuss like, well, how it's so important to develop an, a relationship with these guys that they need to feel like they are something greater than just a subject number, a test number. And I, you know, as sitting in the audience, I'm like, of course they do. They need to feel that connection. So to hear, to hear that as well with you, that, you know, you try to manage everything on the, the outside of the court to affect the inside of the court. I think that's, that's awesome. Ed, you sort of have, uh, you know, and, and based on just our conversations, I don't, don't let me put words in your mouth by any means, but a similar philosophy of like using numbers not to define a person, but to help sort of uh, help pull them along in that relationship. Would you got anything? I mean, like, tell me what your relationship is to this, this last 10 minutes or five minutes. What is, what's going right. on in your head? So I think about um, the cliche of uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And as as much as I totally agree with that, to me, there there's so much more there there's so much more embedded in that idea, so much more subtlety there that that I don't think uh, we recognize or or act like we recognize in our relationships. Um, you know, because I I think of um, one of my best friends and a guy that I learned a lot from as a coach. Uh, I mean, he could he could be so hard on athletes that he worked with. But what I saw him doing, though, was investing in them first. Um, and I think that was something that wasn't, that a lot of people didn't get the opportunity to see, was how much how much he put into them and how they recognized how much he put into them. So that way, when he got on them, when he was hard on them, they had a deeper context. There was so much more to their relationship other than just he yells at me when I make an error. 
Um, I think that that's part of it. Like they've got to know you care in that regard. But but the other thing, and and this is where I think my my role uh, applies a little bit more, is that um, I think a lot of times in the cliched, very simplified version of of uh, you know how much you care that that we as coaches treat it like I need to care about them socially. So I need to ask them how their parents are, how their how's their brother, how's school been, um, you know, are you going to prom, all that kind of stuff. That if I have those kinds of social conversations, social interactions with them, then I'm sending the message to them that that I care about who they are, and I think that that's true to a point. But at the same time, to me, it's almost like how much. How much value is that in building a relationship beyond like the conversation I have with the person who sits next to me on the airplane? You know, oh, how's the weather? Oh, where are you from? You know, what do you do? Like, I don't feel like we're best friends when we get off the plane. And I don't think our athletes feel like we are their best friends uh, when we have those kinds of social interactions with them. So to me, as, uh, as someone who interacts with the athletes around the numbers, I'm looking to talk to them about the numbers and make it a conversation that isn't just you, you had a, you know, you hit 300 today. Um, you know, you passed a two, four today. Um, you know, it, it's like, well, what did it feel like? Describe, describe to me, like, you know, if they want to know how they passed in practice, well, what if, what did it feel like you passed? Did, did you feel like you, it went well? Was it a struggle? You know, so like now they're getting to tell me a little bit about their experience and I'm sort of trading that for the information that they want. And then they have the opportunity to balance out the numbers that I have with the experience that they had and, and sort of see what, how those two can be reconciled. And they recognize that I was a part of that interaction and they see that I care about how they were in practice today, you know, that, and that what they are doing in practice makes a difference. So I'm not just treating them like a Jersey number. I care about, well, what did that, you know, if you had a rough day, what did it feel like? You know, like what, what caused you to struggle kind of thing. And, and so now they see me as being an ally who's with them in their struggle um, that I am a part of the team that is there to support them as they're working to to meet their own goals. And, and I think that is one of the big ways that I'm showing them that I care. And and they seem to respond well to that. That seems to have served me pretty well. And, and that way I feel like I'm creating a much better relationship and I'm helping them feel like they're in a better place to do their job. And I think just so that this audience can, you know, navigate to different outlets where you both are and both you guys are quite social on social media, right? You, Ed, has a uh, has a website called eduardocoaches.com, which is also your Twitter handle and Instagram. Yep. My goodness, you've you've got the entire social media locked down. Fortunately, there are not a lot of other coaches <laughs> named Eduardo though, uh, that speak English. That speak English, right? And RJ, you are both active on Twitter and Instagram. If the audience have not 
manage to catch a, an avocado report from you. It's they're they're missing out if they have not seen your Instagram, um, your IG stories of you in the Olympic weightlifting gym, um, and then traveling through airports. Then they also are missing out. But your Twitter handle is Coach Ridge. Is that the same for your Instagram? Yes. Yes, Coach okay. Ridge, all around. All around. Same, same with me, Adam Ringler everywhere. I want to I want to wrap the show up with maybe uh, asking you, RJ, first, and then I'll go with you, Ed, as far as maybe the the best piece of advice or that you've either ever received or now that you're rounding out coaching for you know 12, 13 years, Ed, a little bit longer. What's the what would you want to give to a young coach like that? That same RJ that steps into the gym coming off of the end of his playing career and starting his coaching journey, what advice would you give that person, that RJ, that version of yourself? Wow. Uh, it's a kind of a twofold. And one, it might be a cheesy answer, but it's so true. I, fortunately, like I get to mentor and kind of talk with a lot of young coaches that are interested in progressing up the ladder um, and even kind of get their foot into collegiate and division one or whether it's indoor or beach. I tell them to one sub to this podcast, but two to listen to Ed's episode when he was first on. Cause I actually, I think I might've texted you Adam or something. I was like, this is amazing. Like, but it's, it's such a good, I, for some reason that just really hit home to me. So for, for all those young coaches out there aspiring, dig back to whatever episode that Ed was on. Cause uh, I love it. there's some awesome nuggets there that I, I seriously share that episode with so many, so many people. Um, nice. I'll, I'll make sure to add that episode in our show notes. So perfect. That, that way the audience can just sort of navigate through the show notes. And then secondly is you, and this kind of, works with recruiting also, but you can never, ever compare your path or your experience to someone else's. Um, I think a lot of coaches, like I always say, like my journey to where I'm at, I'm the unicorn of collegiate beach volleyball coaches, or just, I guess, volleyball coaches in general. How, where I came from to where I'm at now, good luck trying to replicate that. And at the end of the day, you should never try to, oh, well, RJ did this or this person did that. I should do it. Like you, you can't compare yourself with other people and let alone from even like social, what they see on social media. Um, like everyone's so unique that there, there's just no blueprint to it. I mean, you can, you can seek guidance and look for direction. But at the end of the day, your process is your process and it's unique to you. That's awesome. Ed, how about, uh, how about yourself, man? I I've asked you, I think I might've asked you this several episodes ago, but I'd love to hear if there's a new answer that's sort of resonating in your mind. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, you can't step in the same river twice. I don't think, first of all, RJ, thank you for the compliment that seriously, man, that, that hits me. Um, the, um, I think there's there's a couple things that come to mind, and they're they're tied together. One is um, the idea that um, if I try to be like you, then who's going to be like me? Like it's my job to be like me, um, and I think that that's how one of the ways one of the things I take away from what you were talking about, RJ, 
And then the other thing that's tied to that, uh, this is a, a relatively newer idea for me, but it really crystallizes a lot of what I feel and believe in that is uh, we teach who we are. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out that um, me, anything that I do as a coach, as a teacher, as an educator, uh, needs to come from an authentic place, from who I am. Um, and so the advice that I want to give to to people who are starting out is if you're going to teach who you are, then you need to figure out who you are. You need to figure out what what sorts of things matter to you, what sorts of things are important to you. Um, you know, like I talked before about, like, the bridges that you want to die on, um, figure out what those are and, and figure out what you want those, those things to be like. And almost more importantly than that, because I think that gets us stuck, uh, stuck in thinking about tactical or technical or philosophical things. One of the things that's super important for me in terms of who I am that I want to teach the place that I want to teach from is that the, the place that I teach from has to include what I believe about my athletes, what I believe about my learners and what they're capable of doing. And I think that says a lot about what I believe about human potential. Um, and, and that to me is probably where I've learned the most that, that is the most applicable to my coaching philosophy and how I behave when I'm working with learners. Um, it, it's about me coming from an authentic place. So I want to send the message that you need to find your authentic place. You need to figure out who you are, and I will do anything that I can to help you figure that out. I just appreciate both your guys' candidness and ability to articulate sort of not only your own paths and your own coaching journey, not that they should try to emulate the pathways that you guys both establish um, as a recipe to the successes that both of you guys have, but just the the willingness to be transparent and vulnerable and, and share and uh, to to share some of the the stories that you've had and how we've sort of uh, crossed paths in uh, in our careers in one stop or another or the the six degrees of connection and separation that we have between coaches and it is truly a, a small world that we live in and uh, maybe a, a nice little reminder that you never know the level of influence one person has to another and, and what level of connection that you may have. So it's a good reminder just to be a great person. And both you guys are outstanding people. And the reason why I wanted both you guys on the show. So I appreciate both of you guys coming on. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, everybody. That is going to be a wrap for this episode of the Decoding Excellence Show. Hopefully you took something away from the conversation that I shared with Eduardo Fialas and RJ Abella, two incredible coaches, but also probably even better people. Uh, we got into the weeds about uh, life and stories and our own coaching journeys and the backgrounds and relationship that we have with data and how we can improve uh, the relationship that we hold to our student athletes and that we have with our student athletes through the way that we approach using 
numbers and using data. We also talk quite a bit about how we can build culture and some of the things that is deliberately done both on and off the court to affect the performance on the volleyball court. But more so, it was just a fun episode to catch up with two great people and two of my friends that I have uh, continued to be blessed with knowing, but also sharing my own coaching journey with. So hopefully you took something away from the show. And as always, there's a number of different ways that you can support the show, right? The first thing is I have a monthly newsletter that goes out. It is located at adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. And like I said in the intro, it is chocked full of great articles, research papers, um, sort of daily notes, things I'm finding fascinating and experimenting with and being a human guinea pig with to try to change my own behaviors, my own habits, but ultimately to really try to improve my life and get something a little bit more meaningful out of it. So uh, head over to adamringler.com forward slash newsletter, pop in your email, and I promise you, you'll get the welcome email and you'll start receiving those monthly updates and you won't regret it. I'm not gonna send you a bunch of spam messages or anything like that. I really think that you'll get a lot out of it and, uh, and check it out. I get questions every single time we publish either an article or the latest update to the Decoding Excellence show. And the question I often receive is, how do I support this show? Well, we have a new way that the audience and the crowd and everybody else here can support the Decoding Excellence show. Head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. It's actually not buying me a coffee. I know the name sounds sort of uh, confusing or misleading, if you will. But what it is, is it's a, a platform, sort of a crowdsourcing way of, uh, of donating to the show. And the idea is that you would donate a coffee, right? $5, $4 or whatever to the Decoding Excellence show. And what we do with this is we turn the proceeds directly over to supporting the hosting of the Decoding Excellence show on whether it's on Spotify or on Simplecast or iTunes and elsewhere. And it, it supports the hosting fees for our website and the Decoding Excellence uh, Decoding Excellence show. So if you want to support the show, you can buy me a coffee. You can buy seven coffees. You buy yourself a coffee. Otherwise, please head over, check it out. It is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. I'll include it in the show notes. And as always, thank you for supporting the Decoding Excellence show.